Well, we got a little bit of breaking news here today as we got set up to do our recording, Jordan, uh, news coming over the wires uh, that Max Holloway in his upcoming fight against Yario Rodriguez, which was scheduled for July 17th uh, in that UFC event, that's actually been postponed, at least for now. Max had to pull out because of an undisclosed injury. There has been no announcement as to whether uh, Rodriguez is going to fight a replacement fighter. This is a guy who hasn't fought since 2019, so uh, he seems a little snake-bitten perhaps in that regard. But, uh, yeah, undisclosed injury, a bit concerned about Max. Yeah, I think only for the fact that we don't know what it is yet, right? I mean, is it, is it serious? Is it something a little more minor we, we, we don't know right at this point and, and this is kind of really breaking news so yeah you hope it's it's nothing too long term because after his performance back in January uh, against Calvin Cater you want him to get it back out there as soon as possible right and you figure he, he disposes of Rodriguez he can get back in a title shot against Volkanovsky or Ortega who he's already beaten so yeah it's, it's, let's hope it's not too long and, and let's let's hope the the potential fill-in isn't like a rematch against BJ Penn or something like that for Yair Rodriguez we, just, we don't <laughs> want to see that again yeah, we definitely do not. And yeah, I think that's the biggest bummer, right? It's just Max looked so damn good in his last outing that you just wanted to see him seamlessly get another chance to sort of continue that flow. Hopefully this undisclosed injury isn't something that's going to set him back uh, with regard to his ability to perform at that level. All right, well, let's officially welcome everybody to the show. Uh, this is Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. I'm very excited because we have a great guest uh, on the show coming up in a little bit. Jenna Gabriel, the setter for the University of Texas Longhorns women's volleyball team, made it all the way to the national championship match this past season. Lost to Kentucky there. They battled really hard, uh, but Kentucky, a bit of a team of destiny. Uh, but Jenna led the charge. Uh, she is a Marinal alum, has gone on to play, obviously, at Texas, which is considered perhaps the biggest name brand program in all of women's college volleyball, uh, but her perspective on life, her career is really second to none. You're going to really enjoy this interview. We, uh, we had a blast talking with her. Yeah, it really did. Uh, really fun interview. What a career she's carved out right at Texas, and they're going to get another crack at it here fairly shortly once we get back to normalcy in the fall. That's right. That's right. So uh, we'll play that in just a little bit. Uh, we are going to get right to our game time. And our first topic, uh, the University of Hawaii baseball head coaching vacancy. The search is on. There has been very little in terms of above-board reporting on this. There have been some names swirling, though. Uh, among them, you have UH assistant Mike Brown, who was an assistant the last few years under Mike Trapasso. He's uh, been around the college game at some pretty high-profile stops, last stop Mississippi State prior to the University of Hawaii. And so he's a guy that brings a wealth of experience as an assistant coach, well-liked by all accounts. Todd Takayoshi, a UH alum, longtime minor league coach. He is a guy who has drummed up a lot of local support. There have been many who have been campaigning on his behalf. Not sure if that's going to push him into perhaps the standing of a finalist or anything like that, but certainly a guy whose name has been swirling because of the amount of people who have provided support for him and his candidacy. Uh, and also, this is an interesting name, Rich Hill, uh, who has been the head coach for many years at the University of San Diego. Apparently, he's a guy who like owns at least a timeshare or property here in Hawaii, loves the islands. Uh, in fact, I believe he was actually on island, if not still on island here this week week whether or not that's related to just him wanting to jump in the water and surf some waves or if that's related to his candidacy for this job uh, that's an interesting one
one because he's had a lot of success in the West Coast Conference at the University of San Diego. So uh, yeah, uh, of the names that we've mentioned, of the names that have sort of been swirling on the periphery, what have stood out to you here, Jordan? Yeah, Rich Hill, the, the USD coach, right? Not Rich Hill, the, the professional curveballer that's uh, still pitching in Major that would League be a, That would be a tough buyout to pull off for UH if it was Yeah, I know. I know. When I first saw Rich Hill's name through, I was like, Rich Hill, isn't he still playing? And then kind of, you know, got a little more versed in the fact that uh, there's another Rich Hill who's had a lot of success at the University of San Diego. I mean, about as successful a program in that conference has ever had in baseball, right? And what a gig. Like he spends most of his year in San Diego and then he just comes to Hawaii like during the summers. My goodness, uh, that guy's got life figured out. Uh, Takayoshi is really interesting, right? There are a number of Hawaii guys with ties that have worked in professional baseball. Um, obviously, a little shorter list when it comes to actual University of Hawaii alums like Todd uh, that I think make a lot of sense. Mike Brown, I think if he wasn't attached to the previous staff would be a very intriguing name and a guy whose resume is pretty good really right he he played in the sec he's coached in the sec uh he's coached at different levels throughout division one baseball and has had success uh particularly leading offenses it's just i think for a lot of people if you were to hire somebody off of the trapasso staff fair or unfair it's just going to leave a, a an awkward taste i think in people's mouths just because i think most would like to see just a, a fresh start right something brand new after 20 years of Mike Trapasso, and, and that's to no fault of Mike Brown's, right? He's only been here, what, two seasons, basically. I think he got hired prior to the 2019 season. 2020 season really doesn't count. And so, you know, it's not really his fault, and I think he's actually a pretty decent candidate on paper. It's just, you know, he's on staff. It's, it's one of those things that they get a little dicey when it comes to it. Um, I, I'm really curious because, as you mentioned, it, it's sort of just been rumor mill at this point, right? There hasn't been a lot of concrete reports out there as to who's – been interested who the University of Hawaii is interested from their end and so it's just a whole lot of coconut wireless in the wind if you will and and I I am fascinated because if you can I mean if you bring a guy with 20 plus years head coaching experience at the division one level who's gone to nearly 10 NCAA tournaments and a guy like Rich Hill uh, I think it's it's hard to say you're going to find a much better candidate than that right because my assumption was it's going to be somebody either young and up and coming you're going to try and get a first-time head coach or maybe a career assistant, a guy who's maybe cut his teeth in the minor leagues or something like that. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very curious to see what the, the profile of the guy that David Matlin's going to go after. Yeah, I mean, even a timeline uh, as to when a decision is going to be made hasn't necessarily been presented. So a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty. This is very much up in the air. And David Matlin, the athletics director at UH, has also – shown that uh, there's not just one type of candidate that he seems to lean towards. I think you could make the presumption based on his first two major hires, which were Aran Ganat and Robin Amo. You thought, okay, maybe this is a guy that likes to lean towards a younger, more up-and-comer type of coach category for replacement. Uh, but then he goes and he hires Todd Graham to take over for Nick Rolovich and that U University of Hawaii football program. And that was very much the antithesis of the kind of hire that Robin Amo and Aran Ganat represented. And so, yeah, I think this could go a number of different ways. Rich Hill's interesting uh, from the standpoint of he's older than Mike Trapasso. I mean, this is a guy who looks like he's 32, but he's actually like 59, I think a couple of years older than Mike Trapasso, but he's been there, done that in the baseball biz. And we suspected this, right? We suspected that this was going to be a vacancy and a job that would draw a lot of attention and a lot of applicants from various corners of the country. And I think Rich Hill represents that. Like this is such a cool, potentially sexy job that even a guy who has kind of had his career set at the University of San 
San Diego, which is a pretty darn good place to coach baseball, may be interested in this job. Again, a lot of this is, is merely speculation, uh, but uh, just goes to show perhaps uh, just how valued a position uh, the University of Hawaii baseball head coaching job really is. All right, switching elsewhere in Manoa, more coaching news as another departure was reported for the University of Hawaii men's basketball program. This on the coaching staff, fresh on the heels of Chris Gerlofson leaving the University of Hawaii. You have Jabari Trotter, another assistant coach on the staff, leaving to take a position with his alma mater, Dartmouth. Uh, there has not been any announcement for replacements for those positions. Uh, John Montgomery is expected to take on the associate head coaching spot alongside Aron Ganat. Uh, but we talked about so many players who transferred out after this past season. Now you have multiple coaches leaving the program. Do you question how all this looks? for University of Hawaii basketball? Yeah, I, I think you kind of have to, right? It, it doesn't look great. Things may work out in the end, don't get me wrong, where it's still very much up in the air, but it doesn't look great, right? I mean, Chris Gerlifson to USF, as you mentioned, Jabari Trotter, who goes to Dartmouth, there are ties there. Obviously, he is an alum. Uh, James Jean Marie, one of those transfers. He ends up at Portland State. Justin Webster, who was a sophomore captain off last year's team, he ends up at UNLV. These aren't necessarily large step-ups that you could argue, right? They aren't clear and obvious, like, upgrades in terms of stature of program uh, as these guys depart from the University of Hawaii. I think there's an argument to be made, right? USF and the West Coast Conference, uh, Dartmouth, their profile at nationally as an Ivy League school, UNLV with their pedigree. As it currently stands, like, these guys aren't making massive promotions, right, when, it, when you break it down. And so because of that, and, and particularly some of the timing of it, right, as we get deeper into the summer, deeper into the offseason, closer to next season, uh, a guy like Trotter leaving in the middle of the summer. Um, it's hard. It's hard to find coaches, right? It's hard to fill those spots at this point of the year. So so all of those things combined is going to lead you to, to feel a little uneasy. It's going to lead to a bit of apprehension, I think, if you're on the outside looking in. And again, they, they may find some young guys to come in and, and and take over from a playing standpoint. We've talked about the recruiting class on past podcasts. Um, they may find some some really young, innovative coaches, some, some good recruiters. Who knows? But these are big holes to fill, and and the constant turnover is something that isn't unique to the University of Hawaii. In fact, it's pretty commonplace around the country. Uh, but when you look at the type of departures, the timing of the departures, and where those departures ended up, uh, I think it, it isn't encouraging. That's for sure. It happens. Uh, we mentioned Rich Hill at San Diego. I think in 2018, he like lost all his assistants and basically had to rebuild his entire coaching staff. And so it's not unique, as you allude to. Uh, but I think the optics, just under the circumstances, based on uh, you know what can be described as a fairly quotidian win-loss record this past season for Hawaii, you know, I, I do think that the optics can be considered questionable. You know, another thing that, that sort of bothers me is that there hasn't been an immediate announcement, and I'm not sure if there even will be, of the elevation or promotion of Jesse Nakanishi from director of operations with the program to an assistant coaching position. And to me, that should be automatic. This is a guy who is from Hawaii, a state championship coach at Kamehameha, was an assistant coach for Darren Vorderbergi at Hawaii Pacific University, uh, and then bounced around to a couple of different Division One programs before taking on the director of ops position with Hawaii and it just seems like that would be a natural transition move him up as a full-time coaching assistant uh, but that hasn't happened and, and so to me things seem to be very much in limbo uh, with regard to that program and, and I think that 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 is a concern. 
All right, so we move on to now a new segment that we're uh, busting out here for the Let's Talk Sports podcast. Uh, we're calling it LTS Q&A, just a little bit of a question and answer segment. And uh, to help us out with this, uh, this is a uh, wonderful young woman who has decided to help us as an intern and really uh, just uh, free labor. We're just abusing her position uh, to help produce our show. She is the one who actually got us Jenna Gabriel, also a Marinal alum, Kenna Tanoy joining the uh, podcast. What's up, Kenna? How's it going? Hello, hello. All is well over here in Oregon. <laughs> yeah, so we have uh, Kenna and Jenna, both from Marinal as part of the episode here. Uh, both of them currently on the continent. Uh, but Kenna, thanks for uh, helping us out and, and certainly uh, helping us bridge the gap with Jenna and getting her on. That was a great interview. We'll be playing it here momentarily. But we, we appreciate you kind of being a part of this thing, so much so that we would like to ask you to help us with this LTS Q&A segment. Are you, are you cool with that, just sort of introducing the questions and topics for this segment? For sure. Let's do it. All right. And if uh, you disagree with how we respond to any of that, uh, you feel free to just jump in and, and tell us how stupid we are. All right. So uh, if you would, please take us through the first topic. Is Major League Baseball's response to its sticky situation an appropriate one? Okay, all right. So this is in response to Commissioner Rob Manfred sending out a memo earlier this week saying that Major League Baseball was going to crack down on the issue of pitchers using foreign substances to get a better grip on the baseball. Players will face suspensions with pay if they're caught using such substances as sunscreen, rosin gel, or this thing. It's kind of a combo of those two, basically. This thing called spider tack. Uh, that business is probably loving life right now because it's been uh, getting a lot of free publicity here over the course of this week. Uh, but you have pitchers like Tyler Glass now who blamed his recent elbow injury on the new enforcement policies. He's saying, hey, look, that helps us grip the baseball without some of those grip-friendly substances. Uh, we're having to hold the baseball tighter. It's putting more pressure on our arms. He lambasted Major League Baseball because of the fact that they decided to make this policy change mid-season. I actually cite one of my favorite team's players, the Mets, Pete Alonzo, who, uh, as a hitter, had a very interesting perspective on this. He said, hey, look, I would prefer to be in the batter's box against a pitcher. If he's going to be throwing 100 miles an hour, I would feel more secure if that guy had a better grip on the baseball, if he used whatever he could to get a better grip on the baseball. Uh, I think what Major League Baseball is looking at, though, is the ability of these pitchers to increase their spin rates. Now that that's become a thing, a measurable in baseball, uh, now you can actually say, all right, this pitcher with the use of, say, spider tack or something uh, is able to get a higher spin rate get better movement on the baseball make it harder for hitters as opposed to what we've seen even in the few outings from pitchers post this announcement by major league baseball where those spin rates aren't as high it doesn't necessarily take away from the overall effectiveness as we've seen from guys like garrett cole or even tyler glass now uh, but it it, it is interesting to hear a guy like Pete Alonso say, hey, look, I would rather these guys have that kind of control if they're going to be throwing triple digits in my direction. Where do you stand on this? Was this, in fact, an appropriate response by Major League Baseball? This is tough, right? I, I mean, it's – and on one hand, it has given us the gem that is the Garrett Cole press conference when he just absolutely was dumbfounded that he was asked a question about spider tech. Uh, so that was the light side of things. It, it, it's one of those deals where they – you know. Baseball pitchers have been using stuff to get a better grip on the ball for like a, over a century. Like it happens, right? Especially late in the year, it gets cold. 
they need a little extra help to get on the grip. And, and the way things have developed though over here in the 21st century, right, is teams have hired like chemists to figure out how to use this stuff to increase spin rate. And they're using it not just to gain a grip on a ball and get a little more control, but they are trying to maximize the advantage of some of these substances, right? In the same way that the teams use advanced analytics to, to figure out who to play against a certain pitcher, what to do in a certain situation. Like they have applied all of that advanced math nerd analytics to <laughs> like substance on a bait. Like when I found out teams were hiring chemists and, and, and things of that nature and figuring out the physics of all of this stuff, it is just mind blowing. And so I don't know how you police that, right? Because it is sort of a safety issue, right? As multiple players have brought up, not just pitchers, but batters as well, hitters. Some of the best hitters in the game, arguably the best home run hitter in the game right now, as you pointed out, in the polar bear, in Pete Alonso. And so I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the happy medium is because, look, rosin's still a thing, right? You can still take a rosin bag out to the mound. And so you can still use things, but you can't use others, right? And so what is, what is the line where is that? My biggest problem, and I, I, I do think they need to figure that out. I don't think you can just have it completely unregulated, uh, but I don't think it's probably smart for anybody to just have them go out there and, and with sweaty hands and just fire a 102-mile-an-hour cutter that some of these guys are throwing these days and, and hope batters just you know don't bail out of there. But to do it in the middle of the season, which I think you have heard almost universally just chastised, right? When it, 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 You can't do it now. Yeah, 100%. I think the overall response can be appropriate. I mean, even Tyler Glass now said that he'd be open to these rule changes. But to do it now midseason, I do think that is asking a little too much of the players, of the pitchers themselves. And you're starting to see now an accumulation of pitchers who are dealing with some pain. I mean, you know, you have Jake DeGrom, who's probably the best pitcher in the game, uh, and he's dealing with some shoulder stuff. You don't know if that's related, but I don't think Major League Baseball would prefer to see pitchers all of a sudden in multitude get thrown on the injury list because they're trying to adjust to not being able to pitch the way they have been for, you know, the several months already into this season. All right, Kenna, what's the next topic? Okay. Are you on board with the proposal for a 12-team format in the college football playoff? All right. Yeah, I'm on board for it. Uh, still needs to go through the approval process, but a special driving committee, which included Mountain West Commissioner Craig Thompson, interestingly enough, conjured up this 12-team format that would give spots to the six highest-ranked conference champions and the six highest-ranked teams outside of those squads, as determined by the College Football Playoff Selection Committee. So based on last year's results, if this format were applied, both Coastal Carolina and Cincinnati would have made it into the College Football Playoff. I'm all for that. By the way, Notre Dame would not qualify for those six conference champion spots by virtue of their independent status. My only criticism is if you're going to go to 12, how much harder would it have been to just go to 16? And then you get the 10 conference champions as automatic bids, and you just put in the six best teams as determined by the selection committee after that. You got a nice round 16 number. To me, if you're going to go this far, why not just go to the 16, give conference championships that kind of value. Even if some of them get spanked around in the tournament, it should be worth something. But I'm all for this, if nothing else. Yeah, I, I, I think I go the opposite direction. I always thought six teams was kind of the perfect one. You preserve a, a little bit of that regular season, as you mentioned. I, I, I was always kind of resigned to the fact that I think eight teams would have been the number, but I know that, you know, more is more money. Right. And so it's just going to keep growing. And where do we stop? Like is 12 
right? Is, is 16 the number? At what point do we start having to, to cut down on the regular season? Because if we're going to get to a point where we're playing four rounds of playoff football, plus 12 regular season games, plus a conference championship game, like we're playing NFL playoff schedules at this point. And if the NCAA is going to sit there with a straight face and keep telling us that these are student athletes who don't deserve to get compensated for their labor efforts, and also we care about, you know, head injuries and, and, and physical well-being while also asking these teams if they're going to win a national championship to go play like 18 games. It's just we're all part of it, right? We're, we're consumers on one end. These guys are selling us a bill of goods on the other end. And these players are going to, you know, give up their livelihoods and, and their bodies and minds in a lot of ways to, to go ahead and put this product on the field. Like, it just doesn't sit well with me. And I'm not going to sit here and say, like, oh, you know, be the self-righteous guy or anything. It's just like, okay, at what point are we going to actually, you know, maybe take some of this stuff a little seriously and say like, okay, maybe it's a little too much. I like, I like any scenario where the little guy gets a chance. Right. And so I am going to support something that allows the mountain West or the AAC or the conference USA to, to get a spot at the table. And so the six highest ranked conference champions, right. There will always be at least one of the group of five in there. And funny enough, as you pointed out last year, it would have been two group of fives and then the PAC 12 again would have been the butt end of all <laughs> the jokes right. because they wouldn't have even automatically qualified. They would have had to have been one of the at large berths. And so 12 just seems like two, we're going from four to 12. It took us forever to get to two and then to four. And now we're going to go from four to 12 in like the span of a blink of an eye, almost as we see, it just it makes me a little uneasy that we're going to keep going and growing and growing and, and without a real balance to it. 12 seems like a lot. Four extra games? Eight, eight seem like the logical next step, but hey, more money, right? All right, next topic, Kenna. Do the Nets need to advance to the Eastern Conference Finals for Kevin Durant's legacy game to qualify as an all-time great? Uh, KD had what is being statistically described as maybe the best playoff performance ever. When you talk about efficiency numbers, 49 points, 17 rebounds, 10 assists. I mean, this was monster. And hey, look, we've all had some criticism for KD, right? The move to join the 73-win Warriors that uh, he was up 3-1 on when he was a member of OKC. Uh, and so to win a couple of championships with them seemed, you know, a little manufactured and doesn't necessarily stand out as this incredible accomplishment. Uh, but that said, KD, he did only play like 36 regular season games this year because of the injury. But what he's doing post-Achilles injury, uh, what he did in that game where you didn't have Kyrie Irving, you had a banged-up James Harden who was maybe serving as more of a detriment to the team than otherwise being out there on the floor. What he did was spectacular, and I think he deserves all the credit in the world for what he is accomplishing so far in these playoffs. He is putting up Shaquille O'Neal-level efficiency numbers, and this is a guy who's shooting from 25 feet away. Like, it's just ridiculous. I do think they have to win this series, though, for that game to really be stamped as an all-time great performance. I mean, you have some playoff performances that didn't result in advancing past the series like MJ's 63 against the Celtics, but that was like a young Michael Jordan making his name. Uh, I think in order to put this on par with, say, like LeBron going for 45 in a must-win on the road against Boston or LeBron's Game 6 of the 2016 Finals where he goes for 41, 11 assists, 8 rebounds, you know, they went on to win those series. And I think that's what would make this performance by KD an all-time indelibly etched performance that we'll talk about forever. We'll still do some of that regardless, but I think that would really kind of set it into the next level stratosphere. What do you think? Yeah, I agree, right? It's just going to add to it, right? Because 
you and I, we, we bag on KD a bunch. Right? I think that's no secret to folks who have stuck with us to this point on the podcast. Like, I think if you're an absolute KD guy, you might have just like tuned us out a while ago. <laughs> he played 48 minutes in that game coming off of the Achilles. Like that, that might be the most impressive number is the 48 minutes. Steve Nash was like, he's good. Just let him play. Incredible, right? The, he had three steals, two blocks as well, mixed in with the triple-double. He was incredible, absolutely incredible. But I'm with you, right? Because you, you mentioned, like, Michael's 63-point game, some of LeBron's game. Like, LeBron's – to me, the, the, the game six in Boston is always my favorite LeBron game. But argue, quite honestly, if you look at it as objectively as possible, like, game one of the 2018 finals when he went for 51, right? 51, I think, eight and eight. Like, he just missed out on a triple-double. I know it was overtime, but they lost. Right, and they end up getting swept. And so it gets sort of overlooked, but he was magnificent. And so if the Nets don't win this, it'll be sort of a game like that for Kevin Durant. But if they do win this, right, if they do beat this Milwaukee team with a, a very shorthanded group, and I get it, like Jeff Green played out of his mind. <laughs> Other than if, if he doesn't do that, they probably lose, which is crazy because Kevin Durant was so good. He, it just shows you, right, how – even if you, if you don't like the guy, and I'd imagine this is the same for a lot of LeBron haters, right? Where it's like, yeah, he's good and whatnot, but I don't like him. And that's sort of where I stand with Kevin Durant. Those are the games where you just remind it that this guy is, when he is on, like he's unguardable, unguardable. And as you pointed out, the, the, the most impressive part about it, I think, is just how efficient he is going about doing it. Because he's not Shaq, right? He's, he's not playing three feet from the basket and dominating people. Like he is hitting pull-ups in mid-range and just, just unguardable. All right, Ken, the next one. Is it a big deal that Tua threw five interceptions during Dolphins practice earlier this week? Yeah, Tua threw five interceptions. The weather was uh, described as being monsoon-like. It was heavy rain, heavy winds. Tua said afterwards that they were working on trying to be more aggressive. Uh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I really don't think it's a deal at all. There were stories of Jimmy Garoppolo the year that the 49ers went to the Super Bowl uh, during their training camp. He had three consecutive throws that were picked off. And everybody in the media was sort of panicking, like, uh-oh, is this a bad sign for Jimmy G? Uh, and then they ended up making it all the way to the Super Bowl, probably should have won the Super Bowl that year. Uh, but, yeah, I don't think this is, this is a big deal. You know, if, if he does this in a game sometime this season, we look back on this uh, maybe with a, a little bit more value. But, uh, yeah, the fact that he's doing it in training camp, uh, I don't think it's a big deal at all. Look, you can make a lot of, you can add a lot of context to it, right? It, it was a downpour. They were working on situational type stuff. They were working on squeezing balls into tight windows, according to a lot of the reports. But even if it was the most perfect day out there, would we get, would we say they're winning the Super Bowl if he had thrown five touchdowns in a, in a, in a training camp practice? No, right? And so on the other side of the coin, it's like, look, he threw five interceptions. Like, it happens. These guys do that. They're working on different things. They're trying to work on timing with new receivers. They're trying to work on understanding different concepts, route concepts. You're going to take some chances, see if that works out maybe with a guy. Like, it's, there's nothing to it. And I know it made some headlines. It made some of the local headlines even um, here, here in uh, some of the media. It's like, nah, let's, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Again, yes, if he does this in a game, sure, we should be very concerned. But not, not, not in OTAs. That was a lot of fun. LTS Q&A with KT, Kenna Tanoi. Kenna, thanks for uh, helping us out. That was uh, really, really cool. No problem. Uh, on that note, it's time for our Domino's Hawaii main topping and our interview with 
Texas setter Jenna Gabriel made it to the national championship match this season. A bit of a renaissance woman, as you will hear in the interview. She has talents beyond the volleyball court as well. So let's go ahead and play that right now. All right, here with Jenna. And uh, first off, how's the off-season treated you so far? I understand that you were able to make it back to the islands, at least for a short little brief period of time. Yeah, the off-season was short, but very much needed. <laughs> Got some good downtime at home. And now we're right back up in Austin, getting ready to go again and starting our summer training. Well, I go back a little bit uh, with your dad, Daryl. And, and, you know, he's a good dude and was a great athlete, obviously, that runs in the family. Um, but uh, how's he doing? He's doing pretty good. Lots of golfing. And I'll tell you right now, he could tell you absolutely anything about volleyball. You could name any <laughs> team anywhere in the country, some of the pro teams. And like that man will tell you everything, you know, he'll give you the spill on all of it. <laughs> well, I mean, he, I mean, that's the, the coach in him, right? I mean, that never goes away, right? Exactly. I think um, as soon as all three of his children decided they weren't going to play basketball anymore, <laughs> he took it into his own hands to learn everything he could about volleyball. Like, I would genuinely trust him to coach a team at this point because he really knows what he's talking about. I can't call him after a game and be like, Dad, you don't know what you're talking about because every single thing he says to me is spot on. And it's the most annoying thing but at the same time like it's really fun to just like talk story with him about volleyball and like actually be able to hold like a really long conversation about everything going on he hasn't like crossed the line and like tried to talk to your coaching staff or anything and give them advice right I mean he hasn't at least done that right no never that never that <laughs> okay thank goodness that's that would be a, cr a crossing of the threshold there um since we're on the topic though what was it like growing up in that household? I mean, the Gabriel name is one that runs pretty deep as far as the roots in Hawaii sports. And, you know, some really great athletes have been sprung from that family. What was it like growing up in, in that household? Yeah, for sure. It was really fun. Constant, constantly very competitive. I think I tell a lot of people that sometimes I feel like I'm too competitive for my own good. And It'll just be the most basic situations that, like, I'll go crazy in because, like, I just want to win. Um, but just growing up, like, all three of um, my dad's children, I guess, like, me and my siblings, we were just thrown into a bunch of sports and, and just went into it. It's, as kids, like, we don't really understand, like, what it, what it means to, to be an athlete or what it means to have our last name. And as we got older and more and more people talk about my dad and my uncle and everything that they've done back at home, you kind of start to understand it more. And you're like, okay, I get it now. Like I, I have a lot to live up to. And from there, it's really fun to kind of just use that as motivation to get better. Is there a little trash talking or is it a little more competitive, especially now that, you know, a few of you are, are doing this at a pretty high level, your, your, your dad, your uncle, they've, they've done it at a pretty high level. Uh, is there a little comparison going on or is it more supportive when you get back home? Never really comparison, but I would definitely say that there's a lot of tough love because they are the expectations for us are very high. Like we're we're out here and we're doing what we're doing at such a high level, and it's not good enough for us to just be here and be a part of it at the same time. Like, yeah, that's really cool, but you need to be the best at what you're doing, no matter what level you're doing it at. How did that sort of translate once once you got to Texas, once you made the leap from high school? It's a very high level college, obviously. Um, you know, I mean, 
no secret, right? You're a little undersized for, 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 for that region of the game, if you will. But, you know, I think anybody who's watched you play, it's kind of, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I'd, I'd imagine that translates a little bit, that competitiveness, some of that tough love that, that, that maybe toughened you up as you got up there. Yeah, going into it and taking my first steps on campus, my first steps onto the court and into the practice gym, for a second, I kind of felt like, okay, maybe I'm a little in too much over my head. But then, like, I snapped out of that so quick. I think growing up with my dad and um, him being my first coach and probably my favorite coach ever, I was just so mentally prepared for everything that was about to happen. And I was so up for the challenge that every single day I just woke up with that type of mentality and was able to talk to my dad about it every single day. And so he kind of walked me through it. His, his journey to success in college wasn't, wasn't the easiest either. He really had to grind for what he did and, and to get to the level that he got to. So it's kind of nice to have him there with me all the time to support me in that sense. And, to push me to just keep getting better and find a way onto the court. Obviously, when you sort of have that, that blueprint, if you will, already kind of in your DNA uh, of what it takes to play at a, at a collegiate level or at a higher level, um, you know, that, that may give you a different perspective. But I find it really interesting uh, here over the years how the, the modern athlete, the modern Hawaii prep athlete really doesn't have or appear to have a sense of reticence when it comes to, I'm going to go away and I'm going to go to a big stage, and I'm going to go to a program that has this enriched history that maybe there was a time and, and there were eras previously here in the islands where that would be, as you alluded to, maybe too much, or that would be aspiring too far. That doesn't seem to be the case for the modern Hawaii prep athlete. How do you plug into to that level of thinking? Yeah, I've, I've definitely noticed that. I, I know talking to my dad and, and him going to California, that being just a five hour flight away from home is still such a huge difference. And then knowing that for my uncle Garrett, being able to stay home and play and constantly have your family around you and having just like the easiness of being able to go to your house for family dinner on a Sunday or something like that. It's, it's crazy how the modern day athlete, we understand how hard it is and how hard it's going to be to go away and be so far away from home. But at the same time, I think that, we just realized that we've worked so hard to get as good as we've gotten and want to go and show it off because once you get to college and you step on a campus and they're reading the starting lineup and they say your name and your hometown and they're saying you're from Honolulu, Hawaii. Like there's something about that. That's just like, it just gives you chicken skin. And that's like, that's something that makes you want to go and like makes you want to like make people realize that Hawaii has some amazing athletes and, I don't think people get to realize that so much because one, it's hard leaving home and two, it's really hard to make it. Like once you come to the mainland, we don't get the same exposure as athletes in the mainland do. And I think that's just like our only downfall, really. It's not that we're less athletic. It's not that we're not good enough to be here. It's just that we don't have the same opportunities as everybody does in the mainland. So I think, I think that's something that just drives Hawaii athletes to want to be better and like want to get to that level because that's honestly like one of the coolest things I've come across since coming here is just the fact that like I get to represent home and and show people that like there's athletes there that can do everything that we can at the highest level so I think it's pretty amazing. Yeah I mean you talk about being introduced and that is kind of a chicken skin moment and then it's it's one thing to be introduced before a match and then it's another thing to be introduced before a national championship match and on national television on ESPN. 
what was that moment like getting ready for the biggest match of, of your career to this point and, and to sort of have that in front of you? Yeah, that feeling was so surreal. I think I might have been like numb for it almost. <laughs> um, but it, it's just it's something that you'll never forget, especially after the year that we had and just having to dedicate literally 10 months of our lives to just going to the gym and training, then coming home and going to school and then not seeing anybody but your roommates and to do all of that and actually make it as far as you did. It makes it feel like it's all worth it. And like that, that was just the coolest thing. And just like hear my name called and like to turn and like look at my family and all of our fans in the stands. Like it's, it's not a feeling that you'll, you'll, forget ever like one of the best moments of my life by far and it's just it makes you feel like everything that you've done up to this point was was finally worth it because it's it's really not easy it's really hard yeah it take take us through this past season because you, you know you the big 12 was one of the conferences that played a fall season uh you had like a winter break and then an abbreviated spring and then you're right into this ncaa tournament which itself was a little weird and you're playing in like convention centers and all but just kind of take us through this journey, as you mentioned, you know, 10 months, and it's a lot longer than you normally have and some weird breaks. And I, I mean, just how surreal was it? And what kind of got you through all of it? Yeah, it was honestly the weirdest thing. Um, I remember it was my birthday when we found out that we were going to have an extra week of spring break. And I was like, oh my gosh, let's go. This is amazing. And my parents literally said, for your birthday, you can come home for spring break. So I was so excited. I was like, okay, I get an extra week at home. Next thing I know, I'm at home for four months. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like what is going on? Uh, and then finally getting back up here and trying to get used to how weird it was and not being able to see your friends. And our program especially took everything really seriously. So basically what happens, you would come in in the beginning for just some like individual stuff, really small group stuff. Your, your mask was on at all times and you would finish that up and you would go straight home. You couldn't see any of your other teammates if they didn't live with you. Um, so that was really hard. And then fall came up and we found out Big 12 was going to have a season. So we're like, okay, this is perfect. It gives us more to just like look forward to because at that point, you're so stuck in the house that like you're literally trying to find little things to just look forward to and count days up to so that like you give yourself something to keep going for almost. So we had that season and it went really well for us. Obviously we went undefeated and um, didn't miss a single game due to us. Like obviously a couple games were moved here and there because other teams got sick and, and whatnot. But our team held strong the whole entire time and, and didn't have a positive case at all. Um, and then we got to go home for Thanksgiving for those two months. And that was really weird because you're going home, but you're also understanding that you have to train your butt off those two months because as soon as we get back, we're heading right into like the real seed. Like this is a real deal. Like this is a tournament. We still want to win national championship. Um, so then we finally got back and, went right back into the same thing, went even harder and just continued to do the same thing we were doing and just not seeing our friends, not being able to like even go out and sit at a restaurant and eat dinner. Like it was just the most bizarre thing and mentally and physically just exhausting. Like at the end of the season, we were completely drained and like needed that month off so badly just because you were just sacrificing so much normalcy to try to make it 
to where we made it. So thank God we made it as far as we did because <laughs> it made it feel, it made me feel a lot better about having to do that for 10 months straight because it was not easy. <laughs> yeah. I, I can only imagine the, the amount of like internal self-motivation it takes to, to stay the course right through, through all of that. I mean, I, I'd imagine there's a, you know, what are you doing drills? Like, like you were back in, you know, back home in the backyard or something stuff you're, you're like individual drills, like how, how difficult is that, right? Uh, I mean, when you do small group sessions and, and having to do this all on your own. Yeah, you definitely had to dig down deep and like try to find something in you that was going to make you push yourself. There's nobody to compete against. You couldn't, you couldn't be running sprints next to your teammates and trying to beat the girl next to you. Like there, there was none of that. Like we could do Zoom workouts and and whatnot, but that's not the same at all. And again, like I thank God I have my dad because he would be out there tossing balls for me, hitting balls at me, just trying to give me some type of reps because especially at home, there was nothing open. There, there weren't gyms to go work out at there. There wasn't any of that. So like you, you just had to find a way to get it done yourself. And I think our team did such a great job because once we got back on campus, we didn't miss a step really. Like we were, we were right back where we needed to be and just getting better every day. And so you make it to the national championship match this year and you go up against a team that, that sort of embodied the idea of like a team of destiny, right? Kentucky wins the, their first national championship. And uh, so you fall short. Uh, how do you leave the arena that evening? What is the feeling that you take with you and, and, and how much of that is still with you and, and sort of drives you here into this very abbreviated off season that you're experiencing? Yeah, that, that game was honestly a bloodbath almost like you you go and you look at the stats and you look at our side and we hit 333 and that's amazing to go up against a team like that and hit three over like over 300 that's ridiculous and then you look at their stats and you see that they hit 375 and that's just unheard of and that team was so amazing like they they played lights out that night especially and like they're obviously it sucked to lose and um, it wasn't the greatest feeling, but I, I was able to walk away just like knowing that we did everything we could. We really did. We played, we played an amazing game. They just were that much better than us that night. And sometimes that's just how sports works. And you just kind of have to sit back and we all did just kind of reflected on the whole entire season and on everything that we did. And there was a time to appreciate how far we went and, and to be proud of ourselves. And then there was also time like right now to just use it as motivation and just understand that second place isn't good enough for us. And we're lucky enough to basically have our whole entire team returning for this season. And that's not something that a lot of other teams can say. So that kind of, kind of gives us some confidence just because our team chemistry is so good. And now moving into this season, we're going to have so much more experience under our belt, being able to say that we've played in a championship and we're that close to just like tasting what a championship is like really is so it's it's a huge motivator like it's it's easy to wake up in the morning at five o'clock and get ready to go into the gym and just be like oh remember when you lost the national championship like yeah go run some sprints like <laughs> go ahead and do it <laughs> so it's it's huge it's it's definitely something I'm grateful for honestly Yes, I would have loved to win. Like, it would have been a great feeling. But this is also something that is really um, easy to use to just continue to push us. Are there challenges? I mentioned the abbreviated offseason. Are, are there challenges that present themselves being that, you know, it's, the, it's a very quick turnaround because 
you're going to go back to the traditional fall scheduling for with the women's volleyball season, uh, fresh off the heels, basically, of, of this season that just recently ended. Yeah, it's, it's really hard. Our strength coach was talking to me about it the other day, and he's like, it's kind of like getting a lawnmower started, and you have to just keep yanking and yanking until it finally starts to get going. And um, we're about to finish our second week of summer training, and that first week, like, it wasn't – not that it was bad, but it was just, like, slower than we know that we can be just because you're just trying to find a way to get back into it and change your mindset and be able to wake up in the morning and, and not just feel tired and feel like you didn't have enough time off and you didn't have enough time to recover. Um, but it helps knowing that it, there's not many teams in the country that have started training the way we've started training yet. And so just knowing that every single day, we're not just trying to go in there and beat ourselves, but we're going in there to try and beat everybody else in the country is, is something that I think has helped us kind of get that mindset going because although like a month seems like a long time, like it felt like two days in comparison to how long we were going this year. Well, what, what's your experience been like at the University of Texas? I mean, this is a, a obviously the women's volleyball program is as good as anybody in the country. Uh, and as an athletic department, right, as a sports program as a whole, there, there is no bigger brand uh, when it comes to college sports. So what, what's that experience been like for you being a part of that? Yeah, it's, it's amazing here. I absolutely love it. And I remember when I first started getting recruited, like recruited here, my first thing when my club coach called me and said, hey, Texas wants to talk to you. First thing I did was like, wait, like the Longhorns? And he was like, yeah, the Longhorns. And I was like, oh my goodness. And so now to be a part of it and, and a big part of it is just so unreal. And just like to be able to make friends with everybody on the other teams and see how much success they have too. It's, it's not like you come here and, and you're strictly a football school or a basketball school or a volleyball school. Everybody wins. Everybody excels at, at what they do because that's just the standard that we set here. And so to like be able to wear burnt orange and have Texas on your chest, like it's, it's huge. And it's like, it's actually an honor and not something I really understood growing up. It's not like I grew up being a Texas fan. So it took me a second to kind of be immersed into this culture and to understand it. And now I can say that I hate A&M and I hate OU and like, I really feel it in my chest. It's not something that I just have to say anymore. So it's been, it's been really cool. I just, I, I know that it's something that I'll be proud of for the rest of my life and something like I'll, I'll rep Texas until the day I die. Like it's, that's just, that's just kind of how it is here. And you just, you have to be a part of it. There's, there's no other choice. And it's, it makes everything so fun. It makes it a little easier to work to be as good as they want you to be. That is incredible. Not only the pride in Texas, but it also comes inherently with a little disdain for, for Oklahoma and AM and and some of those others. That is terrific. I, I was kind of curious to ask you as well, Jenna, the, with, we mentioned the brand and, and with the name image likeness thing kind of coming down the pipeline here and, and just seeing what some of the schools are doing and in communicating with their athletes, communicating with, with some of the, the individual programs, things like that. What has sort of been your experience with this? What has, you know, the communication been like with the school as this all is sort of really brand new, but, but something that, you know, athletes such as yourself currently playing that they can maybe take advantage of? Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting. Our athletic program has been doing a really good job of just trying to prepare us for it and just kind of give us ideas of what we can do. And, 
Um, I think the biggest thing that I've been kind of trying to focus on and not putting too much of a priority on, like for me personally, um, but just trying to like build up my personal brand and seeing what I can do on Instagram here and there. And I think it'll be really interesting to navigate all of this as a female athlete. Um, and especially volleyball, I understand like volleyball is very popular, especially if you come from Hawaii, like it's, it's a popular sport, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not, it's not the most popular. We don't, we don't make a lot of money as, as programs and all that stuff. And, and that's just, that's kind of just like a fact of the matter. Like it's, it's not something that like, I don't, that I dislike. It's something I'd love to change. Um, so the thing, yeah, honestly, the thing I'm most excited for is to try to navigate that and see as female athletes, like where we can go and what we can really do, um, with that power. So, um, I know in Texas, they just passed the law. So all that's about to go into effect. And so it should be interesting. I just, I don't know. I'd I'd love to see like what I can do with different brands and, um, just try to represent like smaller businesses if I can, or something like that. It, It should be really fun. I think it'll add kind of a different aspect to being a student athlete and kind of help to prepare us like for what maybe the real world is holding for us. So it should be really cool. I think that's a fantastic perspective on this. You know, I mean, it is a, a bit of a, a venture into the unknown, uh, but to sort of have that that kind of lighthearted, good-natured approach to it, uh, I think that will serve you well, regardless of what this thing actually looks like. You mentioned your brand, and your brand is pretty expansive because off of the volleyball floor, you also have a uh, knack for musical talent as well, right? I mean, the, the music is, is kind of a part of your life as well, huh? Yeah, no, it's pretty huge. I love it. It's just, it's just my biggest outlet and what I do when volleyball is driving me crazy or I'm really homesick and like, I just need to get away from everything. That's just, that's just kind of what I do. It's what I did growing up. And I don't know, it's just, it's just really stuck with me, especially since I've come up here. It's just kind of something that'll just keep me grounded and just make sure I remember who I am and to go back to that when I'm struggling. So yeah, I just, I like to play around with the guitar and my ukulele and just learn some songs that I really like and I don't know I've never I've never taken it too seriously it's just been kind of something that makes me happy and and keeps me from getting too stuck in my own head or just from thinking that I'm strictly an athlete and I'm good for nothing else so (laughs) then it's been huge as as something to relieve me of a lot of stress uh, have you led the rest of the team in, in any kind of performances? Were there any like talent shows when you were a freshman or anything like that? No, thank goodness, because I would be <laughs> so scared. <laughs> uh, we, mentioned the, uh, we mentioned the family name. Uh, and obviously you have a cousin who is going through uh, his own experience uh, over at UCF, Dylan. Uh, and and also playing, you know, in a big stage, high profile career. Uh, how close are you guys? How much communication have you guys had uh, over the years? Yeah, it's it's so cool. We'll just like randomly FaceTime each other and just check up on each other and see how we're doing. And I follow everything that he does, like on social media. It's not like we call each other up and we're like, hey, guess what award I just won? Like. It's never- <laughs> It's never like that, but I'll go and I'll see that on, on Instagram or Twitter and I'll be like, that's amazing. Give him a call, congratulate him. And every single time we are able to see each other at home when our schedules kind of actually do cross and we're able to spend some family time together, it's, it's really fun to just kind of sit back with each other and 
reminisce about just growing up together and how like crazy it was our, our backyard baseball games or like trampoline wars and how like we've come from that and how that wasn't even 10 years ago and now we're doing this and it's just like the weirdest thing to to see how everything pans out and how far we've gone and it's it's kind of the weirdest thing because when we go home none of none of that even matters we're just home with family and we're decompressing and we're just trying to get away from everything and it's it's just nice to to sit down with each other and be able to talk to each other about what we're going through and just be able to have each other to support each other through everything that is going on just because we kind of relate to each other in that sense well, you guys are certainly carrying on the Gabriel name and legacy uh, to a very impressive degree. And uh, congratulations on everything that has happened to you in your life and career thus far. And best of luck here in this upcoming season. Uh, we look forward to seeing what you and the Longhorns have in store here in 2021. Thank you. All right. Big thanks again to Jenna Gabriel. That was a lot of fun. What a great personality. Best of luck again uh, to Texas here this upcoming volleyball season. Time for our post game. And our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui's premier full-service refuse company offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit WasteProHawaii.com for services information. All right, we'll start with my best, my best. The late-night talk show host, Jimmy Kimmel, is going to be the title sponsor for the upcoming LA Bowl which is debuting in December. That's right. It's going to be called, by all accounts, the Jimmy Kimmel LA Bowl. And apparently this isn't a joke. He announced it on his show. It has been confirmed. And so I'm just thinking, we got to do this with our podcast. We need to take the cue from Jimmy Kimmel, and we need to apply our podcast as a title sponsor to something. Whether it, you know, the Hawaii Bowl is probably a little bit too lofty of an aspiration but maybe the University of Hawaii gets desperate enough for like any kind of revenue dollars that we can get like the name on the field. So here we go. Let's talk sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley Field at Clarence T.C. Ching Athletic Complex. Is that too much of a mouthful? What do you think? Boom. Well, we're big on abbreviating things here on the, uh, the LTS pod. Uh, we got the Q&A segment with KT. Like we're, we're big on abbreviations. So that'll be the uh, LTS, KL, JH field at the uh, TCCAC. So it, it'll work. No, it, that, that'll definitely shorten it up. Uh, I'm not sure what the budget is, but we could probably put down a few bucks to get that naming rights. It just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know if we can afford the whole field. Maybe we should just focus on like an end zone. Like, all right, they're headed in the direction of the uh, Let's Talk Sports end zone. Like, I think that would that might be a thing. Maybe a That's yard line. Maybe a yard, a yard, yard line. line just, just to start. Like, you know, they're heading to the the uh, the Let's Talk Sports 32-yard line. You know, just <laughs> just pick one. Oh, yeah. Maybe both. Maybe we can get both 32-yard lines. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea. Like, just one upright. Just one of the uprights on one of the field goal poles. Uh, that'll be us. All right, what's your best? Yeah, my best. Uh, we're going international. Uh, the Euros started last week. Um, European Championships, European Soccer Championships, 2014 tournament. It's taking place all over Europe. Uh, and it is second to, like, the World Cup. Uh, it is awesome. Uh, ESPN, I've been bagging on them. They're letting some of my favorite personalities go over here lately. But they, they, they cover a soccer tournament like nobody else in the U.S. Fox has had the World Cup the last couple of times out. And they don't quite do it like ESPN does. So go check that out. It's, it's morning soccer. It's great. You got teams like North Macedonia making their debut. 
Uh, and I only bring it up because this is a, a little a little bittersweet for me because I was supposed to go to Europe last summer and actually attend some of these games in London and Amsterdam, but uh, we all know what happened. So uh, now I'm just enjoying it from the comfort of my home. But yeah, check it out. <laughs> all right, let's get to our worst. And my worst, this is a very general one, but uh, NBA injuries. Uh, you have now every team suffering some kind of injury or in the case of the Phoenix Suns, Chris Paul uh, being basically removed from competition indefinitely because of COVID protocol uh, guidelines. And so every team has been impacted. Uh, up until that announcement, the Phoenix Suns were the only team that didn't have an injury to a starter in their lineup. Uh, now you have it. It is very pervasive across the board. And this does seem a little bit much. Uh, you have officials with the league that say, no, the injury numbers have been fairly consistent with what we've seen in previous seasons. Uh, but we're seeing a lot of higher profile players, it feels like, who are suffering from various injuries. LeBron James even took to social media saying that he predicted this. It was a bit of a maybe self-attention getting type of post there from LeBron. Uh, but I don't think it is a coincidence that all the teams that made it deep into the bubble were the teams that seemed to be impacted by injury the most and the teams that frankly were playing the worst basketball uh, of the, the playoff bunch down the stretch. And so, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's a coincidence. It is something that the NBA probably had to anticipate because of that very short off season. Uh, and hopefully they can give the players the appropriate rest prior to the upcoming season. And we don't have to necessarily face uh, not seeing some of the brand name players, like star players, the ones that draw the eyeballs, not seeing them compete at this time of year. Uh, that's a bummer. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And, and you just hope that nothing is long-term right? Because uh, they'll be starting the next season pretty soon. And uh, some of these guys, you know, obviously in Olympics consideration, most of the guys that are already out, but yeah, it's, it's not, it's not good for the brand. All right. What's your worst? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to kind of take that theme and, and go with it because uh, it's two of the bigger names um, in tennis. Nomi Osaka just announcing that she's going to sit out at Wimbledon as well. Uh, we all know, and we talked about it on the podcast uh, a few weeks ago, what, what kind of transpired at the French open, uh, she is saying she's going to take some time to be with friends and family and get ready for the Olympics back home in Tokyo, which starts, uh, what, less than two months now, a month, a month and a half, maybe even less than that. I'm um, not sure when the tennis portion of the tournament gets going. And then Rafa Nadal as well, uh, who just got off of the French Open final loss to Djokovic. Uh, he's saying he's going to sit out Wimbledon and the Olympics uh, to rest his body, saying he's trying to prolong his career as long as possible. Um, and felt his body needed a rest second half of the year. And, and so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's two different injuries, if you will, but I think we can look at it as the same as Nomi Osaka and a lot of these athletes start um, or continue, I should say, not start, but this has been going on for a while, but continue sort of advocating for, you know, self-care and mental health. And I think if we start looking at that a lot more, like maybe Rafa Nadal's physical injuries, right? Mm -hmm. Bodily injuries. I, I think, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference there between the two, um, just uh, maybe viewed a little differently over the course of time. So, so yeah, the two of the two of the biggest names in, in all of tennis, right? Osaka, obviously the number two player in the world. Uh, they're going to miss her at two Grand Slams now. That's that's not good for the sport. Yeah, I mean, clearly there's enough evidence and testimony out there now for us to shift the paradigm and, like you said, start treating mental health issues the way we treat physical health issues, the way we treat sprained ankles and and tweaked knees. Uh, I think mental health deserves that kind of attention. Uh, well said there. That is our best and worst. Brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii. Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at Talk Sports 
808. Big thanks to Jenna Gabriel for jumping on with us. And big thanks to Kenneth Tanoy, uh, the newest addition to the Let's Talk Sports podcast. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Jordan, have a good one. Thanks, guys.